Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Leadership at the end of the day is about leading change. Whether that change is getting better performance or better teams or better culture or better client or customer reactions or even to correct a mistake or anticipate a market shift. One way or the other, you are changing something. Now, for something that is so fundamental to leadership, you would think we would be better at it. And in my experience, most people get changed horribly wrong for the people that are being asked to make the change. There has to be a better way. And in fact, there is a better way. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What's missing? What really happens to people when we're asking them to change? And how do we make change happen in a more effective and hopefully efficient manner? My guest today is Erica Anderson. She's the founding partner of Proteus, which is a consulting, coaching, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. She and her colleagues support leaders at all levels to get ready and stay ready to meet whatever the future might bring. She advises senior leaders in companies like Spectrum, Revolt Media, Spotify, and Amazon on organizational visioning, as well as strategy, team development, and their own evolution as leaders. And she shares her work in her books, of which there are several of them, as well as in a pretty popular leadership blog on Forbes.com. The book we're talking about today is Change from the Inside Out, but she's also the author of four previous best-selling books, Be Bad First. I like that one. We're going to have to talk about it someday. Leading So People Will Follow, Being Strategic, and Growing Great Employees. You can find Erica on LinkedIn and on Twitter, and her Twitter handle is at Erica, E-R-I-K-A, Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a great introduction. I appreciate it. With pleasure. It's a delight to have you here. And it's a delight to have somebody talk about change. You know, so many people talk about change. We talk about change. We talk about change. We talk about change. But it's amazingly how bad we're doing it. So why did, why do you, what do you, why did you get interested in this whole problem? What were you focused on? Well, for exactly the reason you said, when, when, when I write books, it's always because I get curious about something. And we at Proteus have had a change practice for almost 15 years and have helped people and organizations go through big transitions. And I noticed exactly what you said, that it that change is really hard for people and that generally speaking, you know, managers and leaders get it wrong. And I got really curious, like, why is it so hard? That was the first code I kind of wanted to crack. And then how can we make it less hard? How do we actually, when we do go through a change, how do we go through it? What does a successful change look like psychologically and emotionally? And so those were the kind of problems I set out to solve when I wrote this book about change to begin with. It's, um, I hear from leaders all the time that people in the organization are change resistant. Mm -hmm. That's the first word we go to. And I need people to become more change ready. That was old language. Modern language is agile. 
Yeah. Uh, versatile, adaptable, flexible. Pick one of those words. It's usually probably showing up. Resilient is the other hot one. Right, right, right. I think all basically means I want you to accept the change that I have now said we were going to do. Precisely. Quickly. And I want you to accept, yeah, quickly, like right now, within five minutes of me having proposed it to you. <laughs> yeah. So in your experience, why is change so hard for people in organizations? Well, I love that question. And as I started to explore this before I started writing the book, so this is about four years ago, I was thinking about it. And I often look to history to answer questions because we forget sometimes how much we are a product of our history as human beings. So I thought about all right, let's say you're a human being 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 years ago. Your life, that person's life, let's say 200 years ago, would have been unimaginably stable to us. That person almost certainly would have lived in the same place their whole life, probably the same place that their parents grew up, in the same city, gone to the same church, eaten the same foods, done the same work. You know, 200 years ago, if your dad's a farmer, you're probably a farmer. Your dad's a mechanic, you're probably a mechanic. So life, the, the life of a human being day to day, imagine that just incredibly stable, incredibly predictable. And when a change did happen 200 or 500 years ago, it was almost always a huge disruption and a threat and a danger. It was a war or a flood or a famine, right? The Revolutionary War. I'm living in Philadelphia in 1772 you know, and like, oh, my God, the Revolutionary War, right? Yeah, right. So we're, think about that. That was our life as human beings until very recently. So we're deeply wired as humans over thousands and thousands of years to assume that a change is going to be dangerous and threatening mm. and that almost without exception, the best approach is going to be to try and get back to previous conditions, homeostasis, as quickly as possible. Let's get right back to where it was before the flood or the famine or the war or whatever, right? So that's wiring that doesn't go away in these couple of generations when our lives have been very different and now increasingly different. So here we are where changes I, I suspect that more changes have happened in my life in the last month than happened in my great-grandmother's life, period, right? Yeah. yeah. So then we have to rewire ourselves. That's the conclusion I came to, that that mindset, that expectation, that deep expectation that change is dangerous, we have to learn how to rewire ourselves. So change is dangerous, at least that's so our brain says to us. Okay. And I agree with you, let's get back to normal. Right. Back to normal, whatever the heck normal means anymore. Right. And, and, and 100 years ago, 200 years ago, normal meant whatever was true before this bad thing happened. Right. 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 So back to pre-levels. We often say that when there's some catastrophic event and we're talking about resilience and we talk about going, you know, bounce back, for example. Yes. That's a presumption that we bounce back to what was, that we can get back to that state. And the truth is you can't get back to that state. Precisely. But and in fact, I just, I was on Twitter last night, as one often is, and and there was the uh, whole conversation about hybrid work models and work from home and what's going to happen. And this one guy said, I just think we have to force everybody back into the office full time, Otherwise, we're just being soft on them. 
And I thought, wow, that, that is that old wiring that just like the only safe alternative is to go magically, impossibly <laughs> back yeah. to how things were in 2019, you know? Right. And I felt sorry for the guy. I thought, yeah, he, you're, you, you are really a hostage of that old wiring. You right. Know? Right. All right. So we're wired to believe that change is dangerous in some ways, and we want to get back to stability, which is the way things were before. Okay. Now, I am certain that I have a few clients out there, hopefully who are listening to this podcast, who say, bah humbug, that's not me. I love change. I'm a radical change agent. So do we have people out there who just love to make change? Yes. And so like anything else, you know, I, I was talking to my son last night and I said, you know, If I have a bell curve and a Venn diagram, I can pretty much explain everything. So like everything else, it's a bell curve. There are people on the low end of the change curve who hate change and will do everything to avoid it and are deeply enmeshed in that old change is dangerous wiring. And then there are some people on the high end who have figured out how to go through change, like it, like it very much. Then there are a lot of people in the middle, most of us in the middle, obviously, But there are many leaders in the middle who think they like change because they like change that is their idea and that they've had a long time to get used to. If somebody imposed change on them, they would hate it just as much as their people hate change that they impose upon them, right? So it's kind of yes and, right? But then I want to pick up on that because people who actually are good at change, what I found is that they've figured out how to move themselves through what we have come to call the change arc, which is that was this, as you recall, that was the second thing I got curious about is how do we, when we do go through a change successfully, how does that actually happen? So can I, can I explain? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. This was my eureka moment, you know, and it wasn't a moment. It happened over about three months, but when I figured this out, the, and the reason we call it change arc is like, you know, when you're going up a hill, it gets harder and then it gets easier. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about what the hard point is. But the the beginning of that change arc, that movement through change is incredibly predictable. People almost always want to know three things when a change is proposed to them. Okay. They want to know, what is this going to mean for me? Okay. What am I personally going to have to do differently? <laughs> right. Then they want to know, why is this happening? Because most of us have such a strong predisposition for the status quo. It's like, give me a really good reason if you're going to ask me to change. So mm-hmm. give me a why that is meaningful to me, not just okay. some random generic why. why. Why is this happening in a way that's going to connect with me? And then the third thing they want to know is, what will it look like when it's done? And it was so interesting when I figured this out. One of the pieces of research that I did around the book turns out that a lot of psychologists these days, and you may know about this, have have decided that fear of the unknown is perhaps our deepest fear. Hmm. And that really lines up in my mind with the change as danger and threat thing. Yeah. Right? Not only is it dangerous, but we have no idea where it's going to end us up. So if you're asking someone to change and you can't, give them some kind of a sense of where that change will take us. That's terrifying. So that's the third thing people want to know. What will it look like when it's done? So then as people, as we start to gather this information, and this is where I got very excited. It turns out that most people, not all people, most people start to gather that information and they already have a negative confirmation bias. They already assume 
that the change, this is from our thousands of years of conditioning, Mm -hmm. that the change is going to be difficult and costly and weird. (laughs) (laughs) And difficult means I don't know how to do this. Yeah. And other people are going to get in the way of me doing it. There are going to be all kinds of internal and external obstacles. It's going to make my life much more difficult, right? Yeah. Costly. This one was so fascinating when I figured it out. Costly means I think it's going to take from me things I value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what people are often willing to say out loud is about time and money. It's going to talk, cost too much. It's going to take too long. But what they're more worried about are those more invisible, intrinsic things like identity and mm-hmm. reputation and relationships and freedom. It's going to take yeah. away my freedom, right? Yeah. And I'll look like an idiot. That th- Those costs are really mm-hmm. important. And then weird just means, ooh, strange. I, that's not the way we do things around here, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So I noticed this, and you can tell that this is how people are thinking because of what comes out of their mouths. Yeah. They'll say, oh, this is going to take a lot of time. And what if I don't know how to do it? And oh, that's not how we do things here. They say, they say things that show you what's going on inside their minds, right. right? And then I noticed that when that when someone comes out of that and starts to make a change, it's rarely based on external circumstances changing. It's almost always because they have a mindset shift and they start to believe that the change could be easy versus difficult or at least doable, right? Versus yeah. more rewarding than it is costly, that it will give them more than it will take away. They just start to believe this. It doesn't even have to be true yet. Yep. And that it could be normal. This could be normal. This could be the way we do things around here. And it's interesting because normal in this sense, and in most senses, normative behavior is stuff that I look around and other people who I think of as being like me, my peers are doing it or would do it. And people I admire and want to emulate and see as being in power are doing it, which is tangentially, I'll say this, why it's so critically important that leaders model a change because people are scanning the environment to see if it's normal in that way. And so then what we notice is when, and again, you can tell by what comes out of people's mouths when they start to think, okay, this, I can see how this change could be easy or at least doable, rewarding and normal. Then at that point, and only then are they willing and able even to begin to do the new behaviors, to operate in the new ways that the change requires. And then when you have a critical mass of people who have made that mindset shift, the change can actually occur. Wow. But it's only when you get a critical mass yeah. that the change occurs. Okay. Yes. All right. This resonates with everything I've ever seen about change, yeah. but I really like your framework for it. <laughs> so um, that the, and I want to get out of labeling people as change agents or change embracers or innovators or whatever other word you want to use from it. And people are resistant to change. I think that once you label it, you cut off your degrees of freedom for how oh, you deal yeah. with people. So I, I, I could not agree with you more. And and there this one of the things I love about this frame is it gives objective, neutral ways to talk about this. What what you start, what we've heard leaders who understand and use this frame start to say is, where is that person on their change arc? Yeah. Completely neutral way of talking about it. Exactly. And the other thing that it makes uh, makes clear, and I think this is very helpful, is 
you know, a lot of times a leader will, you know, often uh, changes cascade almost always. So a leader usually hears about a change before their people. And right. so he or she has heard about the change and has had time to go through their own change arc, to ask those proposed change questions, to shift their mindset, to get to the point where they go, okay, I get it. I can see how this would be good if we did it, even though it'll take time. You know, they change their mindset. Then they turn to their people, explain the change, and expect them to somehow magically <coughs> be where they are three months after hearing about it. And so to be able to say to them, no, no, remember, they're starting at the beginning of their change arc now, just like yeah. you did a month or two or three months right. ago. So now your role is to help them through their change arc in the same way you went through your change arc. It just makes it so much clearer to people that, no, they're not change resistant or change averse. They're human beings having the normal reaction that, oh, by the way, you had when you first heard that. That's right. I know, but so many leaders think, well, I fought through it, especially senior leaders. I fought through it. I've come to the conclusion that this is the right thing to do or the best thing to do. And therefore, the logic of my analysis and your trust of me and my judgment, that's why you have me as a senior leader, will win the day you know, wash your hands, done, let me announce it, and it'll be immediately obvious. And that's not how people react to change. Exactly, exactly. So, I, I was doing a webinar, one of my, my business partner's clients, I was doing a webinar with the senior team, a kind of an intro to these concepts, and then he was going to get together with them and go through our five-step change model and help them. And at, the, at one point, the CEO, who's a great guy, said, well, at some point, don't you just have to say, come on, you guys, get with the program, we're going to make this change. And I kind of laughed and I said, well, you can do that if you want to, but it's not going to be very effective. It's much more effective to help people through, through their the transition around the change, and then they'll be with you, and then you can make the change. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it also, this whole thing resonates with um, a piece of research that I have cited for ages, which is in the Kahneman and Traversky suite of things. But basically, once I get, and I verified this with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of leaders, when a change is announced to you as a leader, the moment you can figure out what you have to gain from that change or from that risk, to put it in Kahneman and Tversky language, the more likely you are to accept it. But that goes right back to your initial questions. What does this mean for me? Why is it happening? And what does it really look like? Show me how this is going to be good for me. Yes. It's what people want. Exactly. Show me how this is going to be good for me and why it's happening. And though that's the information that helps you start to move your mindset from focusing on how it's going to be difficult and costly to focusing how it's going to be doable and rewarding. Right. Because that's exactly what that research is saying. When people believe that for them, a change is going to be more rewarding than costly, then they start to be willing start to be willing. Okay. All right. So the change starts with wanting three questions. Just let me summarize this one to make sure we've all got our heads straight. One, what does this change mean for me? Why is it happening? Number two. And then number three, what does success look like? What is it going to look like when we're done? Yes. Exactly. And we have a mindset that says by our hardwiring, not necessarily by our um, personality or predisposition, but as human beings, that a change is going to be difficult. It's going to be costly and it's going to be weird. It's going to feel weird. It's not like yes. us. We don't yes. do things like that here. Yes. And as I can get any one person to start to see that, wait a minute, instead of difficult, it might be doable or easy. Yes. 
instead of costly, it might be rewarding. We might get something out of it. And instead of weird, I could see how it could be normal for here. Then I get people on that curve that says, right, I'm ready to embrace the change. Yes. Now, you said a perfect summary. And I wanted to, sorry, I just want to add one thing. This is where that was a perfect summary. And what we tell leaders is okay, in this instance of change, you know, the thing they always tell you on airplanes, put on your own mask before you help others. It's so critical that you ask your questions and go through your mindset shift before you turn to your people. Because if you personally, as a leader, have not gotten to the point where you see how this change could be easy, rewarding, and normal, they are totally not going to believe you when you tell them that it is. Right. Yeah, that's where the inauthentic comes through, yes. and you can't can't convey that one. All right. Now, you said something really important that we haven't touched on, which is that there has to be a critical mass of people who believe that the change is easy, rewarding, and normal, or could yeah. be easy, yeah. rewarding, yeah. and normal. Why? What about the critical mass? Explain this phenomenon first. So a lot of it is because human beings are such tribal creatures and whether or not something is normal or normative is so important to us. So let's say that you just for simplicity's sake, let's say that you have a change that is going to, you know, there are 10,000 people in your organization, but 3000 of them are going to be deeply affected by this change and need to behave differently in order for the change to take place. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, until a critical mass of that 3,000 people, and it seems like it's about a third, are saying, yeah, no, okay, I, I get this. I get how it could be good. I'm what, teach me how to, how to do it. It just, uh, it doesn't move. It doesn't happen. Because the other two-thirds then look at them, go, and, that, and it's interesting that the, what quite often happens is that first quarter or third that do it, they're often kind of bellwethers and you know, people that other people look to. And then the other two thirds who are a little less, you know, right. Right, kind of, or forward thing or whatever, they look at those people and they go, well, Joe, who I really like and respect and my boss, Alice, who, you know, is good and seems to have her head screwed on straight. They're doing it. Okay. I guess, I guess it could be easy, rewarding, normal, right? I often say when you're trying to persuade a group of anything, I don't care the size of the group, about a third of the people have to be on board with whatever it is you're saying. And you can swing the tide in the group. But there's some magic about this third. And I can't, I've never found any research that documents it, but it sure does hold in practice. Observationally, empirically, we've both experienced it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about that. Um, And then the other, you know, and you never get a hundred percent, but the rest, enough of the rest of the people then kind of follow that first third to, to make it so that it's well, and then you're starting to see some successes out of it if you've got a third of the population moving in it. But, you know, I'm sure we've both seen chain initiatives where somebody announced the initiative. Um, it sounds great. Everybody's hanging around going, oh, well, what does that actually mean? Okay, fine. And then it keeps being talked about. So everybody starts using the same language, but largely nothing happens. Happens, yeah. And then yeah. it just fades to the yeah. background. Like it never gets that third majority of doing yeah. things differently. We just changed our language. I wonder if it'd be helpful. I know we were going to talk about this. I wonder if there's a good point to, to talk about our, the actual change model, the five-step change model that we use. 
I do. I want to hold that one for just a minute, though. I think that's a really good one. And I want to reemphasize, we'll come back to that in a minute, but I want to also emphasize this notion that I see so many leaders who say, I want change in my organization. We have to change. And I will say to the leader, are you ready to change? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> At the end of the day, I want the organization to change as in evolve around me while I sit in a very stable, secure, comfortable, exact same space in the middle. Exactly. And I don't have to change. Do you see the same thing? See the same thing. And it's why we always try as quickly as possible to get down to kind of brass tacks. What actually is going to change? What are the measures of success? What are you personally, Mr. or Ms. or Ms. X leader, going to need to do differently in order to demonstrate that this change is a real thing? Because you're right on that kind of completely theoretical, fantastical level. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love change. I'm willing to change. So you have to get down to, okay, this, these are the things that you are going to need to do differently day to day in order to be a demonstrator of this change. And that's where that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you find out whether or not they're actually willing yeah, to change. Right. All right. So three things really stand out about on the uh, for this about me. One is this notion of the mindset change from being difficult, costly, and weird to seeing that it is potentially doable, uh, rewarding, and normal. Yeah. Getting that mindset, oh, maybe I can see it. Getting a critical mass of about the third of people who are starting to do it. Because I agree with you, we were tribal creatures. And if others are doing something, then we kind of go along with. It's a little easier to get momentum. And if others are not doing, then we tend to hang back and wait and see what happens. So you've got to find that third and get it moving. And you've also got to be the model yourself for what's happening. That all makes perfect sense to me. So this is a perfect place, Erica, to just take a quick break. Um, my guest today is Erica Anderson. The book that we're talking about is Change from the Inside Out. And we'll be right back to talk about great philosophy, but what are the five steps to actually creating change? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. 
Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Erica Anderson, founding partner of Proteus and author of Change from the Inside Out. Um, Erica and I were just talking about the change process and the psychological interactions of change and the fact that people have, as human beings, we are probably hardwired to resist resist change, sorry, to believe that change is dangerous Yes, and to want right. to get back to normal. So when confronted with change, our first psychological reaction is this is going to be difficult or it's going to be costly or it's going to be weird. When I can get about a third of the population to see that it might be doable or easy, that it would be rewarding, and then it could be normal, and I get them acting, then I'm going to be able to move the rest of the organization with it. Okay? And we also know, in addition, that as a leader, I've got to start that cycle, get convinced of it myself, and then I can go about cascading that in the organization. All right. So when we talk about change, Erica, we love to have a change model, steps to go through as if we could tweak the screws on people and have them do what we want to do. But you too have a five-step change process. So walk us through that. Well, yes. And one of the things to your earlier point, one of the things I, maybe the main thing I love about our model is that I really see it as a way to integrate the very practical nuts and bolts project management of that exists in any big change. There are lots of specific things that you have to do in a certain order and change with the psychological and emotional task of helping all the people involved through their change arc, cascading the whole organization through the change arc. And I, I feel like that's what our model is uniquely set up to do, to recognize that it is a, a practical and a humanic, if you will, process that has to happen at the same time. So, and you'll see also that our process is very lined up with what we said about the change arc, which also I hope makes sense. So the first step in our process is um, clarify the change and why it's needed. And usually uh, any change in an organization starts with a fairly small group of usually pretty senior people that we've come to call the change initiation team. It's usually like one of the examples I give in my book is uh, a manufacturer and the head of manufacturing decides that their production process for their core product really needs to change, that it's Mm -hmm. not very effective and efficient. And she thinks about that and she talks to her peers and gets the CEO involved. So they're, they're the little change initiation team, right? So that team on behalf of the organization needs to get clear on what the change actually is, which often, as you know, does not happen in organizations, <laughs> and why it's needed. And as I said before, why it's needed in a way that's going to be meaningful to the people impacted. Like, for instance, if, if, if this group just goes, oh, well, it's going to make the company much more profitable, 
that might be motivating to them because they all have equity or their compensation is tied to profitability. But is that going to be motivating to somebody on the production line making $18 an hour, no matter what happens? No, probably not. But if part of the why is it will take busy work off of your plate, or it will make it so the clients, the customers will like it better. You know, those are things that might well be motivating to people on the line. So you really have to think about the whys that are motivating to the affected people. So that's the first step. And, and remember, it's just this small group kind of doing it on behalf of the organization, maybe asking some people, maybe t- reaching out, but really trying to get clear about those things. The second step we call envision the future state. And it's where they get really clear on a kind of vision level, what we were talking about before. What what does success look like? What what will it look like when this change has been made? How would we describe it? But then also, how will we measure that success? So that we're thinking about it and clear about it, both on an aspirational level and on a very practical level, so that we'll know when we got there. And again, this is this small team doing this on behalf of the whole organization. And you notice that when this little group, usually a senior group, has gone through these first two steps, they have the wherewithal to then answer everybody's three questions at the beginning of the chain chart, right? What does this mean? Why is it happening? What will it look like when it's done? So that's what those first two steps are. The third step we call build the change. And it's where you start to start to cascade. You start to bring other people into the tent. And what we suggest there, especially if it's a big complex change, that you nominate and set up an actual change team. Because big changes can take 12, 18, 24, 36 months. The senior team is not going to be working on a day-to-day. So you want to set up a team that actually is going to clarify and then manage and drive the change through the organization. So in the book, I give a lot of um, kind of advice about who to get on that team. It's very important. And then you also think about, all right, other than the senior people who have already been thinking about it in this change team, who are the other key stakeholders? Who are the other people in the organization who, if we don't do this right, could get in the way? Mm-hmm. Like for instance, in this change I'm talking about of a you know production line, it could be that, let's say, the, the chief union steward, let's say it's a unionized shop, is neither on the change team or hasn't been in these initial conversations, he or she is going to be critical to the success of that change. So you have to think about, okay, that person's a stakeholder. Where are they? How are we going to partner with them to help them understand and bring them along? So you kind of open the tent to the change team and the stakeholders. Then the most important task of that third step is you actually build the change plan. And, uh, you know, I go through some detail in the part of the book about that, you know, all the things that you probably know as a project management, you know, work breakdown structure and all that. I don't go into it in much depth because it's not a book about project management, but it's absolutely critical that you make a good, clear plan for the change and then assess the organization's readiness. So you understand how far away they are from being ready to be okay with this. So that's step three. Now, the fourth step is the step that you've been talking about and I've been talking about that rarely, if ever, happens in organizations. We call it lead the transition. And that's where you put the psychological aspect of the change on top of the practical nuts and bolts aspect. So the first thing you do is you figure out who in the organization is going to be most affected by the change. So in this one I'm talking about, it's anybody who works on the line, anybody who supports the people who work on the line, all, you know, 
all the, the, the union representatives, you know, you can figure out who's going to be most affected by this change. And then you figure out how they're going to be affected, what's ending for them and what's beginning for them. And that helps you figure out what is likely to be difficult, costly, and weird for those groups of people. And this is where you have to bring them in because they're the ones who are going to have the most knowledge about how this is going to be hard for them. Lots of times their bosses make up things that aren't true. So this is where you want to start talking to those people and bring them in. And then you create, in effect, a transition plan. How are you going to help those groups of people through their change arc while you are implementing the practical steps of the change? And then you implement them together. So like, for instance, let's say that um, you're going to, I'll keep talking about this production line thing. You're going to have a different workflow and you're going to automate part of the process. Those are the practical things. You have to buy the automation. You have to figure out the steps of the workflow. Okay. How are we going to prepare people for that? What do we have to tell them ahead of time? How can we listen to their concerns? How can we then show them here? Can we teach you this workflow? Can we show you the automation? Can we hook you up with someone who's already used it? You figure out what's going to be necessary to help them through that change arc while you're implementing the practical part of the change. It's very exciting when you do those two things together because you get, you get a critical mass, the change works. Right. And then the fifth step we call keep the change going. Because two things. One is, as you know, every change that's ever been made has unintended consequences. There are things you don't see. There are things you're not aware of. And if you just kind of, you know, wipe your hands and walk away, you won't catch those and the change could just fall apart, right? Mm -hmm. If you stay attentive, and especially if you stay attentive to the people who are being affected by the change, they're quite often the ones who come to you and say, hey, you know that part of the line that's now automated, things are really piling up after the automation part because we don't have enough people on the line there. Oh, wow, you're right. Let's make a secondary change. And they start to feel more invested in the success of the change because you're listening to them. You're giving them a voice. You're giving them agency, right? Yeah. So that's the one thing is you got to keep track of it so you can keep evolving it. And then the other thing is in this fifth step, you can look back at the change. And this is a great point to notice if there are uh, structural or systemic or cultural elements of the organization that are change impediments, not just to this change, but any change, because it's absolutely certain that this is not the last change you're going through. Yeah. So you can say, wow, you know what? Our system of uh, inventory, that, that wasn't part of what we were looking at, but boy, it's really screwing it up because we're, we're having things come off the line so much faster. Now we really see how bad our system for inventory is. And it's going to make it so that not only this change or any other change we want to make to production, it's not going to work very well. Okay, we're going to have to fix our inventory system. <laughs> so it gives you a chance to see how you can make your organization more change capable overall, not just relative to this change, but relative to change period. Great. Well, that's the process. Oh, my. Easily said and no, not quite so easy to do. So, and I think you're right. Clarify why the change, what the change is and why it's needed. I think people do a decent job of the logical analysis for why change is needed. It usually has a cost associated with it or a customer complaint or some version of that. You know, there's usually there. But 
I don't think people do as good of a job of clarifying exactly what it is that the change is that's going to be needed. I think they talk in very loose terms. Yes. And if I'm sitting there on the manufacturing floor, I've got 15,000 questions of, well, does it affect this and that and something else? And now, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Never mind. So that specificity there, I think, makes really a lot of sense in step one. Right. And one of the things we, to, to that point, one of the things we always have people do in those first two steps is really define the scope of the change because of exactly what you're saying. People will say, well, are we also going to change the production process for this? No, we're not. That might be in phase two. That's not in phase one. Here's what's in phase one. That's incredibly helpful. Yeah. I often say to people that what you want, it's the same thing as you're saying. I just use different language that you're ring fencing parts of the organization. Yes. Like you're calming people down that we're not turning everything upside down. Yes. We're doing this part here in this way. Yes. And, let and me, everything else can carry on. Let me pick up on that because that's a great, there's while in that fourth step, while we're figuring out who's most affected and how and making a transition plan for them, we've developed these four, I think you'll really like this, these four, what we call change levers, levers in the sense of force multipliers. Mm-hmm. And there are four things to think about as you make this transition plan for these folks. And one of them is exactly what you're saying, which is what made me think of it. So the first thing, uh, the first change lever as you're helping people through a change is increase understanding. So give them the information that they want at the beginning of the art change. Like, you know, what does it mean for me? Why is it happening? What will it look like? Give them context. How did this come to be? What challenge are we trying to solve? Why is this true in our competitive landscape? Just increase their understanding. So often when there's a change, there's this kind of blank space. And you just say, okay, do this differently. And people are human beings and they want to have some context. And they're like, well, why or how did they, you know? So the more you can increase their understanding of the change, what it means, how it's happening, don't worry about over-communication. Over-communication is great. That will be really helpful. The second one, and this is exactly, I think, what you were saying, is we call it clarify and reinforce priorities. Because people often assume, as you just said, when a change is happening, that everything is changing and they get really freaked out. So if you can say, no, those four priorities that you had before, three of them are exactly the same. Only the fourth one is being affected. And the way it's being affected is how we go about meeting that quota. The quota itself isn't even being affected, right? right? And it really is soothing and reassuring. And and it's a great frame for people to be able to go, oh, okay. So what you're saying is that about 80% of my life is basically the same. And 20%, okay, that I can do, right? Right. It's super helpful for people. The third one is, and this one's really interesting. Uh, the third one we call give control, because when change happens in organizations, it comes at people and they feel victimized. They feel like they have no control, right? So whatever you can do legitimately to give people agency, to give them a voice, to take their feedback, to let them make choices, when would you like to share this with your people? How, how do you think that messaging should look? Should we wait until the, the more you can give them choice and agency? the more likely they are to be able to make that mindset shift, right? I'm sure you've experienced that a lot. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to give them a whole lot of choice, just a little bit of choice makes them feel like, okay, it's not being done to me. Okay. Precisely. And then the last one we call give support. 
And the support that most people need at the beginning of a change and don't get is simply to be listened to. <laughs> they don't need you to reassure them or dismiss their concerns or talk. That They just need you to listen to them. So when they come to you and say, oh, my gosh, I'm really worried about how much time this is going to take and we're all going to have to learn this new process. And you just say, wow, so your main concern is just that you already have a day job and this is going to take up more time. Yes, that's an absolutely legitimate concern. Can I share with you how we attend, how we intend to address that? So if you listen to people first and you listen to them all the way to yes, then they're ready to hear your solutions. Yeah. If you start by trying to talk them out of it and dismiss them and no, 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 that's not a problem. No, 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 we've already solved it. Then they just, you know exactly what they do. They just sit back and go. They shut Whatever. Or start arguing or get defensive yes. or some variation yes. on the other thing. And right. then their managers think, oh, you're so change resistant, you know. But if you can just listen through people's initial absolutely legitimate and normal human concerns, then they'll be ready to move forward. And then yeah. the support, then then you can offer them that more practical, tangible support of we're training, a mentor, here's the new workflow, all that kind of stuff, tools, you know. Tons of, and then it makes such logical sense. So if I go back, we've got real clarity and why it's needed to start. That's the small initiating team, like the CEO and whoever else, and defining the scope of it, what's in and what's out. We've got a future state, which is including metrics, like what is this going to look like when we get it done? Yes. And then we have to start the change uh, cascade. So build the change. And this is where we start to think about who needs to be in this change. So who are the key stakeholders, but who are the key um, opinion leaders, if you will? Yes. Or who are the ones that are going to be massively affected by this change and making sure that they're in the tent and aware of brought in early enough to have an impact on what and how. Exactly. Rather than just it having dumped on them. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think it's always important at that stage to make sure that your significant naysayers are part of that group because frequently they have a thing they want you to hear that if you hear early enough, you can actually deal with. But if you don't hear early enough. I agree. We, we have a, a little um, stakeholder analysis map. It's very simple. It's kind of like, okay, write down the key people who are neither part of this initial executive team or part of the change management team, but who are, as you say, absolutely influential key stakeholders. Who are they and where are they starting? Just be mm-hmm. really objective. Are they really against it, kind of against it, neutral, kind of for it, really for it? Where are they starting and mm-hmm. where do you need them to end up? Mm-hmm. And it's so helpful to just lay that out. No bad news. It's like, wow, they're all the way over and they hate it. Okay, where do you need them to end up? Even right. if you get them to neutral, it would be okay. Okay, great. So how are we going to do that? And then yeah. it just becomes a problem to be solved and not like, right. oh my God, you know? Let's not talk to those people. Let's keep yeah. a secret from them. Let's avoid them. Let's cut them out of the process. Let's make sure they don't exactly. say anything. Yeah, right. Exactly. All of which is just going to lead to trouble at the end of the yes. day. Guaranteed not to work. All right. So we're building the change bringing the right people into the process, letting them have a voice, working through that with them, not labeling people about it. And now we're ready to talk about the transition itself. And this is the more psychological part. And this is recognize who's most affected and how are they affected. And you said an important thing, something is ending. Yeah. Whatever it is, something they used to do, were good at, knew how to do, even if they didn't like, 
They yeah. knew how to do it and something is ending for them. Yeah. And yeah. people have a reaction to the fact that it's ending, even if they didn't want it. I mean, do it wish it would change. There's a reaction. So getting them from that difficult, costly, weird into a sense of believing that, okay, this could be doable. This could be rewarding and this could be normal. Yeah. Exactly. Right? All right. So that process through that. Now, this reminds me of a ton of research around the grief process yeah. and that you can't move from one place, from one job to the next job without letting go of what was good about the prior job, the exactly. team, the process, the rewards, the whatever. Yeah. And it also reminds me of a story I have, which I'm going to share because I just think it's so consistent <laughs> with what you're saying here. Um, I was doing a feedback training program with one of my clients. And two guys sitting in the room were leaving at the lunch break to go and have a very difficult feedback conversation with an older person who worked for them. And meaning older as in he wasn't old, it's just he was older than the two leaders. Right. <clears throat> and the two leaders felt that this guy was change resistant, that he was resisting their authority, that he didn't like them because they were young and therefore he didn't respect them. That was the conclusion these two guys had come to. Notice that once you've labeled somebody and put them in a box, you limit your options on what you're going to do with them. 100%. Something we talked about. So they said, okay, Wanda, you think you know how to do feedback. How do I give feedback to this guy? And I said, well, let's start with your assumptions. Why do you think he's avoiding the change? And they said, resist my authority. Okay, yes. Do you have another hypothesis? Doesn't want to do it. Maybe. Do you have another hypothesis? Mm -hmm. Close to retirement, doesn't want to, okay. Do you have another hypothesis? Finally, I said to them, look, is it possible that he's afraid that he's not going to be able to do what you're asking him to do? Yeah. That he's afraid he can't learn what you're asking him to learn, that he won't be successful in what you're asking him to learn. Yes. Oh, uh, they were all, you know, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Uh, anyway, they go off to lunch. They come back from lunch and say, how did you know? Because it turns out what he was is afraid that he couldn't do it well. And he'd been very successful. And so now a fear that I won't be good in this new process. If you don't stop to pay attention to that psychological component, you lose the risk of, you lose the opportunity to bring a bunch of people along with yeah. you. Boy, that you're exactly right. And when we, that's exactly where we go with people. When we, 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 the, the frame of what's ending and then superimposed on that difficult, costly weird is so helpful because we really dig in exactly as you did with people. What's likely to be the cost? Think about what's ending for these people. What's likely to be the cost? And they go pretty quickly to where you finally got those guys, which is reputation expertise, relationships, identity. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this thing this way for 20 years. Wow, that's a big cost. That's a big ending. How are we going to help them through that? You know? Yeah. And once you, as you, as you just such a great story, as you I'm sure have experienced many times, when you get people focused on the actual things that are truly going to be difficult and costly to people, but then you can solve for that. Right. But it's only when you figure out what it is that people are worried is going to be costly to them exactly, exactly. that I can even put the solutions in place. And so it's pay, it's hearing, it's listening to that worry 
and not just your own belief about what they should be worried about. It's actually listening to it. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then I love your fifth one, which is keep the change going, which is so easy to say. But the truth is no plans are ever 100% baked anyway. It, you know, none of them. Uh, yes. Things come up that we didn't anticipate or things happen in the world that we didn't anticipate. So that staying attentive and hearing what's working and what's not working and willingness to shift in the moment is also another way of getting a lot more people on board with the momentum of the change. It, great way to say it. And that's exactly <laughs> right. We do change work. And when I do vision and strategy work, when I do anything that's about the future, I always tell people, look, the very best plan that could ever be made is nothing more than a bunch of smart people's best guess. <laughs> We're making our best guess. So we have to stay attentive to reality to yeah. see how that guess is going to turn out. Right. <laughs> Right. And you change one thing, that's going to affect something else, for sure, without any doubt of it as well. As you rightly point out, sometimes you realize then, wait a minute, we have a systems problem here that we need to address. Okay, Erica, I could keep asking you a thousand questions here because there is so much more to talk about on this one. But I'm going to do a very personal thing, which is to say the title of the show is Out of the Comfort Zone. So I like to ask my guests, what takes you out of your comfort zone? I think what change takes you out of your comfort zone and what's your strategy for coping? Well, so I'll give you a wonderful true life example. So my last book that you mentioned, Be Bad First, is about how to become a master learner. And that just led me so inexorably toward the change book. And so when I was writing that book or right after, right around when it was going to be published, I said, you know, I need to learn something that really makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I need to get out of my comfort zone and practice what I preach and, you know, demonstrate to myself deeply what I'm talking about, both in the learning book and in the change book. So in the beginning of 2016, I decided that I was going to learn Spanish. Okay. And I had taken Spanish in high school or junior high or whatever and could, you know, knew some words and stuff, but really I didn't. So I have, so I did that. And at the beginning, especially it was so uncomfortable. I have a, a, a consultant who works with Proteus who is trilingual actually maybe quadla I'm, I'm so envious of her. She grew up speaking Spanish, French, and Portuguese, then learned English when she was 12 or 14. So she speaks all four languages. I'm so envious. But anyway, so I said to her, Vanessa, can we, can I, pra- can we practice? And so the first time we had a conversation, I just watched my own self-talk. Oh, this is going to be difficult and costly and weird. You know, <laughs> this is going to be so hard. I'm going to look like such an idiot. And you know, and so I managed my self-talk and I said, you know, I am, yes, this is going to be be hard. And I know I can do it. I know that it, I can make it happen. It's going to be doable. It's going to be super rewarding. I can make it normal. I, I just managed my self-talk. The white noise went down. I started. So the denouement of that story is here we are six years later. Uh, my husband and I just last month bought an apartment in Spain okay. in part of Northern Spain, a city called Oviedo. And all of the stuff that was necessary, finding an agent, learning apartments, signing all the stuff, finding contracts, I did it all in Spanish. Uh I did the whole thing in Spanish. So I can actually navigate in Spanish now, six years later. And it was desperately uncomfortable to begin with. (laughs) I went through it, you know? So the secret then is managing the self-talk consistent with your model. Changing your mindset from it's going to be difficult, um, costly, and weird to it's going to be easy, 
rewarding so and normal. Okay. Yes. I love it. Fabulous. Erica, thanks for being a guest. What a oh, great show. Thank you so much. This was great. All right. The book is Change from the Inside Out, and you can find Erica on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Um, join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.